We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Hey, Mira, look, it was my neighbor from years ago. His name was Anibal, and he really liked astronomy. And what he was asking me to do, he was holding this pair of binoculars, which were basic, you know, 10x, no stabilization. But he was pointing his binoculars at Jupiter. And so I took a look. And I was astounded that around this bright light, you could see the four largest moons of Jupiter. Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, tiny specks around a larger light. And a thought came to my mind. I said, if a pair of binoculars can give you this much, how much more could I see with a real telescope? And so that began my astronomy phase. (laughs) Hours of research, eyepieces, star charts, but it all ended up with a brand new telescope. And it seems like I've had a number of these phases all my life, and I don't know how my kids will remember them, but I remember a phase when I was young when my parents had the clam digging phase where my siblings and I would go to the beach and we'd hunt for the little air holes and then dig really fast and and get clams for supper that night. And I think for my parents, the best part was free seafood. But anyways, back to my phase, my astronomy phase. Um, We got the telescope, put it together, and waited for a clear night impatiently. And when finally aim that telescope at Jupiter. Now, we've all seen photos of Jupiter, you know, in textbooks or internet, but there's something different about having the light come from the heavens through a lens into my eye, floating there in darkness and if you ever used a telescope, you realize you can, see, you can see the rotation of the Earth. So you have to chase whatever you're looking at because your Earth is rotating. It takes 45 minutes for the light from Jupiter to reach Earth. This gas giant is 1,300 times the size of our planet. If Earth were a nickel, Jupiter would be a basketball. And I felt small. Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the Earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You know, in a telescope, you can just make out the great red spot of Jupiter. It's a a slight reddish hue of a a storm that you could fit Earth into. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, 
what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Now, I don't know if you've had the privilege of seeing the heavens through a telescope like this, but seeing Jupiter or later the, the rings of Saturn, I could not help but feel insignificant. King David, the author of our psalms, of this psalm, sounds a concerning note at first. He does not ask, who is man that you are mindful of? And he says, what is man, using the pronoun for an object. But already in this text, there is hope. David addresses God using the pronoun you. How majestic is your name? You have set your glory when I consider your heavens. These words are not just reverential words for a far-off deity. It is a conversation with a relational God. He begins the psalm addressing God by his personal name, Yahweh. Whenever, whenever you see Lord, all caps, in our English translations, it is God's personal name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which we pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah sometimes. But David uses this name in the same way that one might say, Mom. What a terrific breakfast you've made this morning. And then David proceeds and he addresses the issue that consumes so much of our lives. He begins this at the, at the beginning of verse 5 with yet. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He is addressing the question of honor and significance. And when we feel insignificant, we look for meaning in our lives. When we feel emptiness, we desperately try to fill it. And it's a natural impulse, isn't it? Our lives are finite. The lifespan in the United States went down this past year. 76 years right now. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 144 reminds us. And so much of our lives is taken up, tending to our insecurities, that we're not good enough, that our we want our lives to matter. You know, I look at the weeds in my lawn. And I worry that I'm not living up to my suburban lawn responsibility. <laughs> and that my neighbors are gonna get angry with me. You know, and after the sermon, I'm gonna wonder if it was good enough. And I'm gonna go to my wife and I'll quietly ask her, hopefully that she won't tell me that it's that bad. Actually, she was at the 8.30, so she said, you were okay. But my daughter said, I didn't understand the thing. <laughs> so, but I will say this though, if you wish to allay my insecurities, the most uplifting encouragement I've rem that I remember is uh, about six months ago after the 8.30 service, where an older woman, um, not, not so tall, uh, came up to me and said excitedly, I want to tell you, not a single person in my pew fell asleep. 
But before I could apologize for depriving her of much-needed rest, I'm sure she went away. The point is, we all have our insecurities. And naturally, we look to other people to lift us up. But here, in this psalm, the inspired words of King David provides us the answer to all our striving, all our insecurities. And it begins with yet. Yet you, Lord, have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. A fundamental job of a pastor is that 52 times a year, we stand up on the pulpit to remind everyone, ourselves included, that God loves us. He loves you. He loves me. This psalm gives us even more. He places a crown on our heads. We are royalty. Now, maybe you wanted to be a prince or a princess when you were younger, or maybe you're an adult now and you want to be a prince or princess. <laughs> Done. No need to be Megan. No need to move to England and deal with royal court politics. We have crowns right here. But maybe you don't feel that way. We are, after all, broken and sinful people. Maybe we are aware of the, the sin that has damaged our own lives, or the sin of others that are causing us to be heartbroken. Maybe we don't feel like a prince. We feel too average to be a princess. Maybe at this moment you feel, God forbid, below average. But thankfully, it appears, God grades on a curve. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what grading on a curve means, let me explain. Up through high school, if you get a 95 on an exam, that's an A, right? So if you get an 85, that's a B, 75, a C, and so on. But things work differently in college. My first exam in general chemistry, I was an um, aspiring medical pre-medical student. Uh, first chem general chemistry exam, to my horror, I scored a 50-something. And I was horrified. And I said, so much for being a doctor. But then a fellow student said, hopefully, said, don't worry, we're graded on a curve. And what that means is that they take a look at what the average is, the standard deviation, and then they give you a grade. And, and the standard, the average was in the 40s, the standard deviation was in the 7 or 8 or whatever. And with a score of 50-something, I still had hope to go to medical school. <laughs> so in God's eyes, you know those powerful creatures that fly around with halos and a harp? If they're here on the grading curve, we're right here, just a little lower than the heavenly beings. You might call it great inflation. I'll call it grace. So whether you are a CEO of a multinational corporation or you are a janitor who cleans the floors of that corporation, you are royalty. 
crowned not with a man-made metallic object, but crowned with glory and honor from the one who made all creation. This is true royalty. But how, how, how can this be possible? Did we do something to deserve this blessing? Let's take a look at verses 5 to 7 together. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, birds and fish. The answer is that we have done nothing to deserve this. We are royalty not on our own merits. It is God who does it. Left to our own devices, we might be tempted to compete with one another, curve or no curve. But it is God who gives us the credits, so to speak. 99.99999 bar, for you math people out there, percent of the points. It is a work of God, not man. And it is a principle that finds its full expression in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is a work of God for our benefit otherwise known as grace. As it reads in Ephesians 2, for by the grace of God you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Are we undeserving? Absolutely. But how can we understand it? Why does God do this? Although I've made a case for God grading on a curve, and that he essentially gives us all the points, it doesn't actually explain why he does this. But there is a reason, a profound reason, why God regards us so highly. My, uh, my wife and I, have four children. And we have this game that we play. <clears throat> the game is, whose fault is it? <laughs> or who gets credit for this or that character trait in our kids? As in, wow, he constantly loses everything and is try to, trying to do three different things at the same time. <clears throat> yes, that would be me. But, you know, if you find this um, thermos, like, at various points around the church, that's mine. <laughs> My kids have actually taken pictures of it around various points in the church where I've left it. There's another of our children who we say, hey, she's so organized and focused. Gets all her hours of sleep in. Well... That would be Janice. But apparently Janice and I also have a whole bunch of uh, recessive traits because there are times that we have no idea where our kids came from. 
But anyway, I can, un I can imagine the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit seeing Earl or Bev or Maria or Carmeli, all those people downstairs helping the homeless in our ministry downstairs. And the three of them saying, their love is just like us. You know, when our family were digging clams by the ocean, them saying, yes, their joy is our joy. I don't, I don't really know how God sees me um, weeding, but I'm kind of wondering if that counts as tending to the garden. But never mind that. <laughs> I think God rejoices when he sees himself in us. Because as it says in Genesis 1, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Just as my wife and I delight over our children and lift them up in honor, God is our Father, and he delights in us because we are his sons and daughters, each of us. This is why he makes us a little lower than the angels. And indeed, one day, it says in 1 Corinthians, we will even judge the angels. How astounding is that? As Tim Keller once said, one of the hardest parts about faith is persuading yourself to believe in something so wonderful. So here we are. We look to the heavens and we feel small. And then there's hope. We realize that God loves us and he lifts us up. He crowns us with glory and honor as his children. And so we feel strong and confident. But how do we live this out? Do we just switch back and forth? You know, one day feel like nobody, the next day feel like the ma master of the universe. What are we to take away from this text? How do we live this seemingly opposite places of feeling? There's a mentor of mine in psychiatry who once taught me that to come to an appropriate assessment of oneself is an important task of life. That we are neither to overvalue ourselves nor to undervalue ourselves. And so one day he asked me, he said, Ray, do you think you're a good psychiatrist? And I thought, oh no, this is a trick question. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, how humble are you? I'm like, mm. the Asian side of me immediately thought, terrible. I am so ashamed. That's what happens when you have several thousand years of self-effacing culturally, you know. But then again, I grew up in the United States of America. So let me tell you how good of a psychiatrist I am. 
But remember, the task is to come to an appropriate assessment of oneself. And I've thought, of, I've thought a lot about this. What is appropriate? Am I a good psychiatrist? Well, on that day, I answered him tentatively, yes. And he affirmed me. He said, Ray, you are a good psychiatrist. And I was heartened. But as I've thought about it since, I start wondering, like, who exactly was he comparing me to? Was he comparing me to the, my fellow trainees? Okay. Or was he, perhaps, if we zoomed out a little bit, all the psychiatrists at McLean, where I was training at the time, well, in that case, maybe average might be a better guess. I could probably flatter myself to be above average. But how about in the history of McLean Hospital or the history of psychiatry? psychiatry? Well, we're back to being terrible again. But there is truth in each of these points of view, both zoomed in and zoomed out. If we're fully zoomed out, full perspective, then surely all mankind is a mere breath. Psalm 39. Zoomed in, we are sons and daughters honored by God, lifted up, royalty. Here's what I think. An appropriate evaluation of ourselves requires that we hold both of these realities at the same time. So that we are like nothing, and yet we are like everything. We are like grass that withers with the wind. We are children of the living God. We are filled with humility. We are filled with joy. It is with both perspectives in mind, zoomed in, zoomed out, that we can rejoice that we are princes and princesses, yet have no inclination to be proud. We have crowns on our head, yet we do not need our honor to be proclaimed by others. After all, if we're just grass in the field that is here today and withers tomorrow, why would we want approval from another blade of grass? But even as I say this, I realize the challenge. There are days in my life when so much is happening around me that I can feel helpless and hopeless, insignificant, and my natural impulse is to do something about it. You know, it's like when I, when I saw the great red spot and realized that our planet of eight billion people can fit into there easily, my response at that point was to take the telescope, put it away, and fix a snack. Stop looking, stop counting, I can't even count to 8 billion anyways, and focus on me. 
What accomplishments can I point to? What powerful friends can I depend on to proclaim my honor? What distraction can I use to fill my feeling of emptiness? And when I'm like this, then my brothers and sisters become competitors. And I'm just trying to climb my way to the top of the heap. There would be no way with this frame of mind to understand what God says in verse 2 of our psalm. Verse 2, out of this mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Ancient Near Eastern creation myths always involve a struggle between the creator and his enemies. The other so-called creators do so using power and dominion and control. It is God, Yahweh, who uses the weakest, the babes and the infants, to establish his strength. In our Matthew 21 text, it is the children who cry out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They proclaim the glory of Jesus because that's all Jesus needed. And if our lens is turned not at what God has done for us, but at the things that we have done for ourselves, we will never understand this verse or God's love for us. We should realize God has placed us in this tiny little sliver just below the angels. One body, many parts. Called to love one another with the love of Christ as the children of God. Our psalm begins praising God. And after this journey through the text, feeling small, lift it up. Psalm ends with the exact words as, a, as the beginning. It is our response to him. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There was a moment years ago when it suddenly came into my awareness that God saw me, that he was aware of me. And of course, we, I think we all those who are believers here, we all know that God is omniscient and he knows these things, but it is very different when you experience it here. And in that moment, a rush of emotions came over me. And at first I felt a surge of joy, like, oh my goodness, God sees me. Then immediately I felt a moment of terror because I realized that God sees me. He sees everything. In Luke, it reads, you justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. I was swimming in this overwhelming, soupy mixture of my God, my sinfulness, and also my God. You care enough to know me? There are eight billion people in the world. 
who am I that you are mindful of me, that you care for me? Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm your son, whom you love dearly. You know, at this time, I was a bit down on myself because um, I wasn't climbing. I was rock climbing. I wasn't climbing as well as I wanted to. I was climbing, you know, I, was, I could only climb a V4 and not a V5 as I wanted to. And it doesn't matter. The higher the number, the harder the climb. It's a bit irrational, but I thought, yes, I know God loves me, but I can only climb a V4. He'd love me a whole lot more if I could climb a V5. And I know that's a bit strange thinking, but my excuse is that I had not yet gone to seminary. So Gordon <laughs> Conwell needed to teach me some things. But anyhow, I think it's much more likely true that God cares not a whit about what grade of climbing that I can do. But it is certainly true that I would have loved me more if I were able to climb a V5. But the problem is, there's V6, and V7, and A, and so on. But this is what happens when we take that zoom lens and point at ourselves and what we have done. We will never be satisfied. So when we zoom in, Let's not point that lens at we, what we have done, but what God has done for us. And yes, God has wonderful hopes for us to grow in him and discipleship. But right now, as you are, as I am, he loves us. So be encouraged today and be reminded of your standing in front of the living God of creation, because then I will have done my job for today. Let us end with the words of the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are overjoyed with what you have done, and we praise your name. Help us always to remember who we are as sons and daughters of you, the creator, the living God, our Lord and our Savior. And we lift all of these things up to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.